Please rise for the reading of God's word from Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verses 12 and 13. Hear now God's word. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Today I'm beginning a new series of sermons called Foundations. Remembering who we are and where we have come from as a church is critical to our ability to perpetuate and promote our mission as a church of Jesus Christ. It's so easy for us to drift, to get caught up in the affairs of life and to lose our way. And so I intend to focus in these next few weeks on the doctrines and practices that have been present since our early days as a church. As was mentioned earlier, Mary Nell and I came to Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church 19 years ago today as I was installed as the pastor of a church of 34 people, men, women, boys, and girls. And in fact, many of them are still with us now, except that the boys and girls are grown up. And I want to pause and just take this moment to thank you for 19 years of blessing for your prayers, your encouragement, your support, your faithfulness. And I think as a family, sometimes like we do in our nuclear families, we forget to say that to each other as often as we should. I love you, and I know you love, Marinelle and I know you love us, and we're very grateful for this and the way God has put it together. But it's also important that we remember our mission as a family, why we're here, and what this is all about. And so we have been through a lot together. God has richly blessed us over the years. But as the old saying goes, it's not how you drive, it's how you arrive. And it's easy, again, to lose our way. We still have much ahead of us, and faithfulness is still the standard. Most of the upcoming sermons were... And that is, most of these are things that I've preached on and taught on before, and most of them were and continue to be worthy of an entire series of sermons. And so these, of necessity, will be of a summary nature. And so today we will begin with a vast, in fact, an infinite topic, and that is summed up in the question, Who and what is God? He's the reason we're here. This is who we worship. Lewis Allen, in his book, The Preacher's Catechism, wrote this, Preachers have a single calling to express who and what God is. So, exactly who is this God that we proclaim to worship? Is he the man upstairs with the long gray beard? Is it true that God is my co-pilot? Is he the soft, sweet Jesus that we see portrayed in many 
movies and paintings, or perhaps are people simply free to use their own imaginations to conjure up an idea of what he's like and can make him in their own image? Well, if God is make-believe, a sort of Santa Claus that who is simply there to serve our felt needs, then I suppose we can simply do as we like. But what if God is not like any of these conceptions? What if he's beyond our conception and imagination? How could we know the true God? Tell me, what do you know about the ocean I mean, of all that there is to know about the ocean, how much do you know? Are you afraid of the ocean? Are you in awe of the ocean? Or what what about outer space? Well, God created the ocean. And he created outer space, and he is far greater than these creations. Is that the God that you comprehend? Is that the God that you worship? My concern is that there is a constant pressure from within our nature, our sinful nature, and without to adopt low views of God. It happens all the time inside and outside the church. And a low view of God is a false view of God. And since our eternal condition is riding on getting it right, there's much at stake. Now, many people believe in a God, but not the God that is revealed in the pages of Scripture. There's a popular view of God held by a confused world. And this God is very safe. He's very manageable. But he is certainly not enthroned. This is a soft God who wrings his hands and would never, ever interfere in the affairs of people. But low views of God lead to indifference. If he's not the Almighty, what difference does it make? If we can, we can take him or leave him without any risk, And we surely don't want a God that interferes with what we want to do. Like Adam and Eve, we want to determine good and evil for ourselves. The truth is, we desire, like they did, to be our own God. And if there is some God upstairs, we expect Him to work for us. The Apostle Paul warned of this when he wrote in 2 Timothy 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine or teaching, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And so once God has been neutralized, he's no longer needed. Now on the other side of things, perhaps God is too big. Isn't he infinitely above the world and our experience? If so, wouldn't he escape all of our puny attempts to know him? Shouldn't we start with the world of our experience and perception and with man himself and 
with all the things that are seen, then perhaps maybe we could ascend to discover whether there is some evidence for God. Isn't God like the ocean and outer space, except even more incomprehensible? And if He is, then how could we ever hope to attain knowledge of Him? From the earliest times, the church has in fact emphasized the incomprehensibility of God and man's absolute inability in and of himself to discover or investigate God's being. After all, God is invisible. And the Bible says he dwells in light which no man can approach. He is the transcendent one. That is, he is the one who is above and outside all the created order. He's the one that cannot be reached. He is the eternal, and we are held by the limits of time. He is the infinite, and we are the finite. No chain of human reasoning, no matter how brilliant, could ever hope to reach God as its conclusion. So what does the Bible say about God? In the Bible, we find someone in something quite different. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, many of you are familiar with, asks the question, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It's a great summary statement. In the Bible, we find the one true God, the one with whom we have to do, the one who reveals himself. Deuteronomy 32:39. Now see that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. The all-knowing, all-powerful God, holy God, before whom we will stand and give an account. He is the creator, the sustainer, and indeed the judge of all the earth. We learn about his character in the Bible. We hear him speak. We see him act in all of his attributes, including his wrath, his mercy, his hatred, his love. He's perfect. John Calvin wrote, The pious mind, the holy mind, does not dream up for itself any God it pleases, but contemplates the one and only true God. And it does not attach to Him whatever it pleases, but is content to hold Him to be as He manifests Himself. And so it's crucial that we examine the claims of the Bible regarding the God that's revealed in the Scriptures. Now, let me make a point here. You might not like what you find. Some people find the God of the Bible to be repulsive, and they openly reject it. They sit in judgment of Him, they cast off His standards, and thus they seek a different God, a softer God, a watered-down version perhaps, a sweeter Jesus than the one found in the pages of Scripture, or most likely, no God at all. But know this, 
that this, any of these, are but a substitute God, and no matter what name you give this substitute, he's not the God of the Bible. You can call him God, you can even call him Jesus, or any other name, but if he doesn't match up with what the scriptures say about him as he's revealed himself, then it is some other God. You see, we're made in the image of God, not the other way around. We don't get to shape him. In the Bible, when people encounter God, it's interesting, we routinely see them fall down. There's no casual strolling into the presence of God. Rather, there is a sudden awareness of His majesty, His holiness, and consequently man's unworthiness. This is the starting place. A big view of God puts things in perspective. Puts me in perspective. Suddenly we get a glimpse of ourselves and our situation. It was like Isaiah when he came into the presence of the Lord in Isaiah 6. What does he do? He says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. So when we have this kind of reaction, then perhaps we then can know that we have begun to encounter the true God. Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. James 2, you believe that there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. You see, there's a a powerful observation in Proverbs 29.1. It says, "He, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. You see, when we continually resist God's warning and his revelations about himself, a gradual hardening takes place. And little by little, a callus develops over our hearts. And we become like those that Zechariah spoke of. It says in Zechariah 7, But they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, Stopped their ears so they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts <clears throat> they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit. Do you remember the response of the crowd when Stephen preached God's word to them? In Acts seven? Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. In many ways, God is not like us. He knows us completely, but we can't begin to say the same thing concerning our knowledge of him. Now I want to cite a number of scriptures here. I'm going to go fast, but these are just samples. We could multiply these over and over. Psalm 139, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. 
For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I can't attain it. Isaiah 55, For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts than your thoughts, and my ways than your ways. Isaiah 40, 22, he, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in outer space. Nothing in the created order can define who he is. What is God like? What are we comparing to? Now, God does give us glimpses of various dimensions of his person by use of metaphors, yet nothing adequately gives us a full comprehension of who he is. He is like a mountain. He is like a mother hen or a shepherd. But in the end, nothing compares to him. And he compares to nothing. Remember Moses? He said, who do I tell the people sent me? When he's encountering God, he said, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. As Dr. Van Til said, in these words, God asserts his supremacy over every concept of man. God is defined by nothing else. Everything else is defined by him. And so, I want us to consider these three things. First, the incomprehensibility of God. Second, the reactions of people to God. And third, the gap between God and man. Incomprehensibility of God. God is transcendent. That's a, a fancy word that just simply means that he is above and outside the created order. He's not part of the universe. That would be pantheism. And so there is a creator-creature distinction. He is beyond our ability to reach him on our own. Again, how often people assume that God is like them and they seek to create God in their own image. Remember the Tower of Babel and they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Job captured it when he said, can you search the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. He is always greater than our ultimate conception of Him. He dwells in light that no man can approach. Behold, God is great, Job said, and we do not know Him, nor can we number His years, or nor can the number of His years be discovered. Compared to all that is limited, He is limitless. In opposition to the temporal, He is eternal. 
All that is called creature is, also, is constantly becoming and changing. It appears and disappears. Perhaps, you know, we had this experience at our house. We purchased an antique mirror some years ago in Phoenix and brought it, uh, had it brought home. And it's been in our home for a number of years. It's an oval beveled mirror. Been in our bathroom over our, kit, our bathroom sink for years. And Marinell asked for some one birthday recently to have that mirror replaced because the mirror was dark and dingy. So we uh, had a new mirror ordered and cut to fit the frame and put in the new mirror. And both of us thought, hmm, that might not have been such a good idea. <laughs> Maybe we want that old one back. Uh, uh, it reveals some things that we had not seen before. So we're constantly changing. Um, we, the creatures, uh, the world, it appears, disappears, develops, increases and decreases, grows and decays, but never remains the same. But here's what we read about God. Psalm 92, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting you are God. We think about God, it ought to make your brain hurt. It's a stretch. Think about eternity. Think about infinity. Second Peter 3.8 But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. That's perspective. Psalm 102, 11 and 12. My days are like a shadow that lengthens, the, the, the psalmist says, and I wither away like grass, but you, O Lord, shall endure forever and the remembrance of your name to all generations. Isaiah 43, 10. You are my witness, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. He is light and there's no darkness in him at all. He is the Almighty, which implies complete wisdom and knowledge. And he is love. All of his attributes, and there are many, all of his attributes are perfect, complete. They lack nothing. He is the unchangeable. James 1.17, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Isaiah 40, 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles, all the islands, as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. I came by Lebanon was forested, the great cedars of Lebanon. And it says they're not even sufficient to burn, nor its beast Sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. Now think about this as I watch the news and all the turmoil in the world and how often we get upset about this, that, or the other. And two weeks later or two months later or two years later, it's all forgotten. It's all been replaced by some other new turmoil 
That's the, that's the history of man, constantly changing. Nations come, nations go. People come, people go. But God remains. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. One more verse here, Romans 11. Who can... We can only reply, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and into him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Consider the reactions of people to God in the Scriptures. How insignificant people of our day consider God to be. Michael Horton said, We want a God who is up close and personal, a buddy who is just as close as our locker room pals. Martin Luther put it well when he said, Men want to see God in the nude. People are anxious to rush into the presence of God, but wait. Consider how people in the Bible reacted to having encountered the true God. Three passages here. Adam and Eve, after they sinned, what did they do? They hid. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Job 40, love. You know, Job's had a lot of bad things happen. Job's got some complaints. Job's got some questions for God. And God sits him down and says, let me ask you a few questions first. So moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer, yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Exodus 33, 18. Moses, please show me your glory, he says to God. Then he said, I'll make my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But he said... You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft, the the crevice of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I'll give you a peek of my backside, God says. Because you can't handle more than that. Some common biblical language, Judges 13, 22. We shall surely die because we have seen the Lord. Isaiah 6, 
1 through 5, well, we already read that. It's where Isaiah comes before the Lord and he says, woe is me. John, in the book of Revelation, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. So how, here's our ultimate question for this morning, how can this gap between God and man be bridged? He's way up there and I'm way down here. He's infinite and I'm finite. He's unchangeable and I'm changeable. On and on and on. The incomprehensibility and immeasurable greatness of God should bring us first to the dust and cause us to humbly worship before his majesty. Aren't we arrogant? Anybody here like arrogance? Don't you love to see arrogance in other people? Don't you just want to draw close to that? How about humility? Genuine humility. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that a wonderful place for us all to start? In the face of his holiness, we should brought to be to see our own lowliness and sinfulness. In the light of his transcendence, we should be brought to see our helplessness. This is the beginning of our rescue and redemption. But thanks be to God, incomprehensibility is not the same thing as knowability. A God that I could comprehend on my own would be limited and therefore he wouldn't be God at all. Yet the God of Scripture isn't cold and indifferent toward his creatures. Of course we can have a real true knowledge of a person without comprehending all there is to know about a person. This is true of even the people that we know very well. We don't even know ourselves completely, right? Though he is a transcendent God, too great for us to fully comprehend, too deep for us to fathom, dwelling in light that no man can approach, transcendent above all creation, nevertheless, the Bible also tells us that he is imminent. So that in him... We live and move and have our being. This is amazing when you stop and think about this. You think about the infinite God, all his perfect attributes. He's eternal, almighty, omniscient. All that he is, all that he is, all his infinite perfection, he is at every place. All the time. Not a part of God. Not a piece of his attention. But rather the fullness of God is present with you all the time. When we say, well, I'm going to focus my attention on that, on that candle. That means I can't focus it on you. I can do one or, one or the other. But God's attention is never divided. He's not too busy. He's not unattentive. He's not not giving you a little bit of his attention. You have all of his attention all of the time. Psalm 139, we already cited. Where can I go from your spirit, David asked. Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. 
Surely the darkness shall fall on me. Even the night shall be as light about me. Indeed, darkness shall not hide me from you. But the night shines in the day, and the darkness and the light are both alike to you. He is a God that is far off, and he is a God that is at hand, and he fills the heavens and the earth. He is, he is in all things, under all things, above all things, beyond all things. First Kings 8.27 But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. And yet he enters into the most intimate fellowship of life and friendship with them that love him, with them that love him. I've read this quote before, but I love it, so I'm going to read it again. J. Gresham Machen, great Presbyterian theologian, uh, early 19th century. I'm sorry, early 20th century. He says this, How can we discover whether there is a God at all? I have, rather, I have something rather simple to say about that question at the very start. It is something that seems to me to be rather obvious, and yet it is something that is quite generally ignored. It is simply this, that if we are really to know anything about God, it will probably be because God has chosen to tell it to us. Many persons seem to go on a very different assumption. They seem to think that if they are to know anything about God, they must discover God for themselves. That assumption seems to me to be extremely unlikely. Just supposing for the sake of argument that there is a being of such a kind that he may with any propriety be called God, it does seem antecedently very improbable that a weak and limited creature of a day such as we are should ever discover him by our own effort without any will on his part to make himself known to us. At least I think we could say that a God who could be discovered in that way would hardly be worth discovering. A mere passive subject of human investigation is certainly not a living God who can satisfy the longing of our souls. A divine being that could be discovered by my efforts, apart from his gracious will to reveal himself to me and to others, would be either a mere name for a certain aspect of man's own nature, a God that we could find within us, or else at best be a mere passive thing that would be a subject of investigation like the substances that we analyze in a laboratory. I think we ought to stick to that principle rather firmly. I think we ought to be rather sure that we cannot know God unless God has been pleased to reveal himself to us. What if it pleases the incomprehensible God to reach out to us, for the infinite to speak to us concerning himself in finite terms? In that case, those who hear and believe his word can positively know that he is who he is, that, that he is who he is and what he is. At that point, we know him. And we know, one of the things we know is that he's incomprehensible, that we can't know him fully. And while we don't know him fully, we do comprehend all that it has pleased him to reveal to us concerning himself. And in that knowledge, we have more than a mere philosophical conception of God we have eternal life. 
God doesn't wait for us to find him, for that would be forever. Instead, he finds us. It's not human discovery, it's divine disclosure. Speaking of God's anthropomorphic revelations of himself to us, John Calvin wrote, For who even of slight intelligence does not understand that as nurses commonly do with infants, God is wont in a measure to lisp in speaking to us, uh, translate baby talk. Thus, such forms of speaking do not so much express clearly what God is like as they accommodate the knowledge of him to our slight capacity. To do this, he must descend far beneath his loftiness. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. We see him in the things that are made, Romans 1 tells us. Again, Calvin says, to prevent anyone from taking refuge in the presence of ignorance, God himself has implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. We're made in his image. We can't escape that. Even Cicero said, there is no nation so barbarous, no people so savage that they do not have a deep-seated conviction that there's a God. And yet fallen man's conception of God is distorted and perverted by his own sinful heart and he stands in need of a corrective lens. Therefore, we have scripture. God has spoken. And I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 2.10, just a few verses here. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. John 16, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, and he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I began the sermon today reading Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. I'm going to read it again. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So let me point out First, the powerful Word of God is able to penetrate past our facades and into our souls and spirits. In other words, God truly knows us right down to our very thoughts. That's a powerful God. Second, there is no place for us to hide from Him. When no one else is looking, He's still looking. In the end, it is Him to whom we must give an account. And so we must always begin with and end with the true God. Knowing the true God then has powerful implications for the world. I want to close in prayer now with a hymn. We're not going to sing it. I'm going to pray it. It's a prayer of confession. Let's pray.
O Lord, we have not known thee as we ought, nor learned thy wisdom, grace, and power. The things of earth have filled our thought, and trifles of the passing hour. Lord, give us light, thy truth to see, and make us wise in knowing thee. We have not feared thee as we ought, nor bowed beneath thy watching eye, nor guarded deed and word and thought, remembering that God was nigh. Lord, give us faith to know thee near, and grant the grace of loving fear. We have not served thee as we ought. Alas, the duties left undone, the work with little fervor wrought, the battles lost or scarcely won. Lord, give the zeal and give the might for thee to toil, for thee to fight. We have not loved thee as we ought, nor cared that we are loved by thee. Thy presence we have coldly sought and feebly longed thy face to see. Lord, Give a pure and loving heart to feel and know the love thou art. Amen. First John 3, 1-3 Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when, when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Uh, during Sunday school today, uh, David ended the lesson with a quote from Spurgeon, and I'm going to do the same now as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. It pertains to our subject this morning. He says, there is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a comprehension of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, and in them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And while humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea, 
be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I now invite you this morning. O Lord our God, we acknowledge that you alone are the initiator and worker of our salvation. We cannot save ourselves, nor can we assist you in saving us. We are the blessed objects of your mercy and grace. Clearly, Christ has demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. While we were enemies, you reconciled us to yourself through your Son. Help us now to walk in the good works that you have prepared for us in Christ. Bless now our extended communion and meal. Give us your rest and joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Amen.